Welcome to The Cutting Floor, a weekly podcast of West Cannon Baptist Church. Each week we'll be looking at topics and questions coming from the Sunday morning sermon passage that didn't make it into the sermon or were worth looking at further. In other words, what was left on the cutting floor. Hi, I'm Emily and with me is Pastor Zach. This week your sermon covered Genesis 3, verse 7 to 13. Your first question is, did Satan take the form of a serpent or was that more of a demonic possession? You know, I don't think that the Genesis account gives us enough information to make a definitive statement on that. So as we see later in the book of Revelation in chapter 12, uh, Satan is referred to as the ancient serpent. He's also referred to as the dragon. And I don't think these are so much literal descriptions of the fact that he is a serpent or is a a dragon. He is an angel. He's a fallen angel. So these aren't uh, what we would call ontological statements or statements about his actual nature, but they are metaphorical descriptions that relate back to the first time that we encounter Satan engaging with humankind in Genesis 3. Now, whether or not he is appearing in the guise, so he just uh, appears to Eve as a serpent, or he is in some ways um, indwelling a serpent, isn't entirely clear. I would lean toward the latter uh, for two reasons. Number one, we see in the New Testament, Christ casts out a group of demons in a demon-possessed man. They ask for a place of refuge, and they are able to settle on some pigs. So Christ dispossesses the man and throws Uh, the demons into the pigs. And so there's clearly the ability for demons to possess uh, animals. So there's a piece of evidence for us. The second thing is that God actually curses uh, the serpent, which both seems to apply to the uh, to Lucifer himself, there's this ongoing enmity between him and the woman that we're going to see uh, next week. But also he says to the serpent that on your belly you will go. So he seems to be uh, actually speaking to serpent kind, that there's this curse that's now on them because Satan indwelled this serpent and then used this crafty creature as the means of deceiving Eve. So I, I tend to incline toward that explanation. So it wasn't demonic possession then? I think calling it demonic possession is probably something that we should think of more in terms of humankind. I think in I think in terms of what we see happening there, Satan is probably speaking through a physical serpent. In regard to our sins, is feeling shame a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, I think that's a really important question, in part because, like we talked about on Sunday, same shame can get us wrapped into this sin cycle that becomes very difficult for us to break out of, where we become so despondent and despairing that shame can become crippling when we just indulge the sin and then never confess it to God, and then we just allow that that shame to act like a swamp that sucks us in. The, um, the Puritan John Bunyan would call this in the Pilgrim's Progress the slew of despond, right? That you are just trapped in this morass of your own self-pity and shame. At the same time, there's clearly something wrong with us when our sin does not produce shame. So in Proverbs 7, uh, the adulterous woman who comes to speak and try to tempt the simpleton, it says that she came with a brazen or a brave face. In other words, even though um, she is clearly there for evil purposes, she has no shame. She's doing so with a, a brazenness that speaks to the fact that her conscience is no longer testifying against her. So in reality, shame is a 
is an important aspect of the way in which our conscience convicts us when we are in the wrong. And so shame should, should be a powerful motivator to draw us to repentance. So where our sin becomes so unbearable to us that we feel the need to confess it, to turn from it, and to turn to God. It's when the, the sin becomes unbearable, but rather than using that to turn to God, we just double down on our sin or we just sink into our own self-pity and despair because we're trying to resolve our sin in our own strength. That's when shame can become dangerous. So shame in and of itself is a necessary symptom that warns our heart that we are our conscience is being violated by our actions. But shame is meant to produce a repentant heart, not for us to just give ourselves over to shame. Is there a point at which having shame becomes a bad thing if you have it too long, even after you've repented? I, I think that's, I, I think absolutely. And I think that's an insightful question as well, because there are individuals who, no matter how much they confess their sin, uh, they just still f- feel the weight and the burden of it. And I think the, we need to deal with the reality of we can repent in a way that is not genuine repentance. We can confess sin and say we're going to turn from it, but in reality we know in our heart and then in our lives we reveal that we aren't really ready to give up that sin yet. So the shame that accompanies that kind of repentance, uh, that false kind of repentance, it's hard to get rid of it because it, it knows that we're not really going to go through with what we're saying that we're going to do. On the other hand, when we really have cast our, our burdens upon Christ, we need to recognize that he died to free us of the guilt of our sin and therefore also of the shame of our sin, and that when we continue to hold on to what Christ has freed us from, we're revealing that we have a heart that is not fully trusting in the goodnesses of the promises of the gospel. And so we need to lean into what the gospel promises, including freedom from the bondage to our sin and shame. Did God take a physical form when it says that he walked with Adam and Eve and that they could hear him walking in the garden? It's fascinating there in Genesis 3. You know, it sounds from everything we read is that this was a regular procedure in the garden because Adam and Eve immediately know what this sound means. So does God normally walk in the garden with them? My, my children go through a catechism and uh, we actually bumped on this recently where we were reading from the Storybook Bible and that God was walking in the garden. And one of my children said, that can't be true, Dad, because God does not have a body like a man, which is one of the answers to the catechism questions. Um, And that's true. God does not have a body like a man. So how do we understand God walking in the garden? A big word that is helpful for us to understand is the term anthropomorphism. Anthro uh, comes from the Greek word anthropos, which uh, is about uh, mankind, and then Morphe is also another Greek word, which means the form of something. So an anthropomorphism is a description of something that, that is um, kind of factored to human form or function. So it's a way of describing something in human language about human form. So, for example, in the scriptures when it says that God has a mighty arm or uh, that God walks upon the waters in the Old Testament, These are not physical descriptions as though God has a physical arm with which he is striking the nations or that he is literally walking on his two feet across the oceans. These are anthropomorphic terms, in other words, using human language to describe the indescribable about God, to help us understand in ways that make sense to us uh, what is really so far beyond our comprehension that God is accommodating himself 
to our language as a means of us being able to understand some truths about him, but not in ways that are meant to be read with wooden literalness. So God does not have a body. So what does that mean in Genesis chapter 3 in terms of his walking in the garden? I I think what we can say there is that there is some sound that accompanies God's presence that comes into the garden. Uh, What that is, we don't know. Uh, Certainly throughout the scriptures, one sound that is often accompanying God's presence is the sound of a rushing wind. So perhaps that's there, the idea of ruach, which is the Hebrew word for for wind. It also happens to be the Hebrew word for the Spirit of God is frequently used in the opening chapters of Genesis. So it might well be that there is this sound of, of approaching wind that testifies to the fact that the presence of God is now coming into the garden we don't know. That's what also happens at Pentecost, which is fascinating. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell people, to walk among them, and there's this sound of rushing wind. That's one possibility, but we don't really know. What we do know is God does not have a physical body, so he is not walking like we walk in the garden. In John 1.18, it says, No man has seen God at any time. So was Jesus incarnate walking with them in the garden instead of God? Yeah, I think this is closely related to the question we just considered the alternate possibility being um, if if it is God in physical form walking in the garden and not an anthropomorphism, then is this a pre-incarnate um, God the Son walking in the garden? Is Jesus Christ here in the Garden of Eden? And I think the answer to that is no. I would want to protect the notion that I believe that the New Testament clearly teaches that the incarnation of God the Son, Jesus Christ, is a unique event, a unique moment in human history, that the Son is not incarnate prior to the incarnation through the virgin birth. He takes in the incarnation human form, and that is a monumental event in in redemptive history. So my strong preference, and my, my conviction would certainly be that this is not Jesus or an incarnate, uh, this is not the incarnate Jesus walking in the garden. I think what we have in Genesis chapter 3 is an anthropomorphism. Again, it's not a literal description of God physically walking in the garden. It is a, a, a general metaphorical description of God's presence coming into the garden to be with man. We read in the account of God opening the eyes of Elisha's servant so that he could see the army of fiery horses and chariots. Does this mean that God has to give specific permission for spiritual beings to be able to be seen? Yeah, it's fascinating there in Second Kings 6, Elisha prays that his servant would see what he sees. And so it seems as though Elijah ha- Elisha excuse me, has already a spiritual sight that most of us don't have. And when God grants Elisha's request. His servant sees that the whole hillside is filled with this whole host of flaming chariots of fire and an angelic host that's there to defend the city. I think if we connect this idea of opening one's eyes back to chapter 3 of Genesis, what we find is the sad and devastating consequence of sin is that as their eyes are opened, they actually end up seeing less clearly. They see themselves in a new light. They see God in a new light, but really their eyes have become darkened. They have a a moral sense of themselves that is now corrupted by a depravity that they were previously unaware of that they now have exposure to. And I think as a result of this new way of seeing, there are also now things that they are unable to see. It's why we read in the New Testament, in order for mankind to receive the knowledge of the truth, God has to open our eyes and open our ears. And so I think the story of Elisha's servant reveals to us that there is a spiritual dimension to the world that perhaps 
maybe Adam and Eve had greater access to in the garden. Maybe it's why they aren't surprised when a serpent starts speaking to them. Maybe they are so accustomed to engagement with spiritual beings, the angels, and with God coming in the cool of the day to, to have fellowship with them, that that was a normal part of their experience, but that that evaporates as a result of the fall, that now their eyes are no longer able to see the spiritual world, that that, that knowledge uh, has ironically enough been deprived of mankind in general terms, unless God chooses to open our eyes to it. Did Adam and Eve go to heaven? Yeah, I think that's a, a really tough question in a lot of ways. And one, to be honest with you, that the Bible does not give us a definitive answer to. So this is entirely speculative, and um, nobody should uh, get upset with my answer one way or the other here. I would tend to say that I think that there is sufficient biblical suggestion for us to believe that Adam and Eve seem uh, seem to repent of their sin in a way that would incline us to think that they will be in heaven for two reasons. Number one, there seems to be a genuine repentance uh, that begins in chapter three. It's faltering, and particularly in Adam's case, it isn't perfect, but there is a, a recognition at least of an offense against God that needs to be remedied. And Eve is pretty blunt in her acknowledgement that she was deceived. And as they then leave the garden, they're given, as we're going to see this next week, a promise that from the seed of the woman is going to come one who will crush the head of the serpent. And for all of the Old Testament saints, from Adam forward, all those who come before Christ, their faith is going to be placed in the God who will deliver on his promises. In other words, every Old Testament saint is, is saved not as a result of keeping the law, but on their belief that God will do what he says he will do, that he will save his people through this coming deliverer. And in Genesis chapter 4, we read, Now Adam knew his Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with help from the Lord. Now that there's, a, there's some interesting things going on there. That might be a little bit of, of Eve... Uh, even a little bit of arrogance there for me, but I'm not exactly sure. We're going to talk about that a little bit more on Sunday. Um, but things don't sort out so well with Cain. He ends up killing his brother Abel, as, as we know, as we're going to see this week. At the end of chapter 4, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And Eve seems here to be looking for that seed of the woman who will crush the serpent that God had promised to her. So she seems to be trusting in God's promises and knowing that God is going to give her this seed who he has promised. Now, what she doesn't know is that this will take thousands of years of human history to be fully realized, but she's looking for the outcome of the promise. Those things to me indicate uh, that perhaps there is a genuine repentance and faith that Adam and Eve possess. But again, it's certainly uncertain. In your sermon this week, you said that the tabernacle and the temple were necessary because our sin limits our access to God's presence. But in the new heavens and the new earth, like in the Garden of Eden, there will be no need for the temple because there will be no sin. Is that true? And why does Paul say that believers are presently the temple of the Holy Spirit? So the crucifixion of Christ there is this moment where it, we read that the temple, uh, the curtain of the temple was torn. And my belief, because I think when we think of what is the curtain in the temple, we would think of the curtain that divides uh, or, or really 
separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the inner parts of the temple, that it is that curtain uh, that is ripped at the, the death of Christ. And that curtain, which is embroidered with cherubim, I've mentioned before, symbolically represents what happens at the end of Genesis 3. Man is removed from Eden and God places a cherub with a flaming sword to guard access to the Garden of Eden so that man can no longer have immediate access to the place where God symbolically dwells on earth. This is what the tabernacle and then later the temple represent in the holy of holy places. But when Christ dies, this veil of separation is torn. It's removed so that we again, through the finished work of Christ, through the atoning blood of the Lamb, have immediate access again into the holy presence of God. Because as we looked at this week, our sin needs a covering, but not one that we're able to provide. And the perfect righteousness of Christ covers us so that those who believe in him can now stand again in fellowship before a holy God. And so as a result of that, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapters uh, 6, and and then really developed through the rest of, of the book there, Paul says that we have become temples of the Holy Spirit so that the, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, which speaks to the fact uh, that while all of unregenerate man can no longer stand before a holy God, believers now have standing before God because of the work of Christ, and therefore the Spirit of God can dwell in us and is renewing and transforming us so that while we are not yet perfected, while we still struggle with the sin nature, we are being transformed by the Holy Spirit into that image of Christ. And therefore, we are able to have the presence of God in us and come before God and bring our needs before him in confidence uh, because of the finished work of Jesus. If you have any questions from the sermon or the sermon passage that you would like to have answered on the podcast, please email them by 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning to questions at westcanon.org. We'll see you next week.